Since we have 8 hours to fill, we fill 8 hours. If we had 15, we would fill 15. If we have an emergency and need to suddenly leave work in 2 hours but have pending deadlines, we miraculously complete those assignments in 2 hours. It is all related to a law that was introduced to me by Ed Zhao in the spring of 2000. I had arrived to class nervous and unable to concentrate. The final paper, worth a full 25% of the semester's grade, was due in 24 hours. One of the options, and that which I had chosen, was to interview the top executives of a startup and provide an in-depth analysis of their business model. The corporate powers that be had decided last minute that I couldn't interview two key figures or use their information due to confidentiality issues and pre-IPO precautions. Game over. I approached Ed after class to deliver the bad news. Ed, I think I'm going to need an extension on the paper, I explained the situation, and Ed smiled before he replied without so much as a hint of concern. I think you'll be okay. Entrepreneurs are those who make things happen, right? Twenty-four hours later and one minute before the deadline, as his assistant was locking the office, I handed in a thirty-page final paper. It was based on a different company I had found, interviewed, and dissected with an intense all-nighter and enough caffeine to get an entire Olympic track team disqualified. It ended up being one of the best papers I'd written in four years, and I received an A. Before I left the classroom the previous day, Ed had given me some parting advice. Parkinson's Law Parkinson's law dictates that a task will swell in perceived importance and complexity in relation to the time allotted for its completion. It is the magic of the imminent deadline. If I give you 24 hours to complete a project, the time pressure forces you to focus on execution and you have no choice but to do only the bare essentials. If I give you a week to complete the same task, it's six days of making a mountain out of a molehill. If I give you two months, God forbid, it becomes a mental monster. The end product of the shorter deadline is almost inevitably of equal or higher quality due to greater focus. This presents a very curious phenomenon. There are two synergistic approaches for increasing productivity that are inversions of each other. 1. Limit tasks to the important to shorten work time, 80-20. 2. Shorten work time to limit tasks to the important, Parkinson's Law. The best solution is to use both together. Identify the few critical tasks that contribute most to income and schedule them with very short and clear deadlines. If you haven't identified the mission-critical tasks and set aggressive start and end times for their completion, the unimportant becomes the important. Even if you know what's critical, without deadlines that create focus, the minor tasks forced upon you, or invented in the case of the entrepreneur, will swell to consume time until another bit of minutia jumps in to replace it, leaving you at the end of the day with nothing accomplished. How else could dropping off a package at UPS, setting a few appointments, and checking email consume an entire 9 to 5 day? Don't feel bad. I spent months jumping from one interruption to the next, feeling run by my business instead of the other way around. The 80-20 principle and Parkinson's law are the two cornerstone concepts that will be revisited in different forms throughout this entire section. Most inputs are useless and time is wasted in proportion to the amount that is available. Fat-free performance and time freedom begins with limiting intake overload. In the next chapter, we'll put you on the real breakfast of champions, the low-information diet. A dozen cupcakes and one question. Love of bustle is not industry. 
Seneca. Mountain View, California. Saturdays are my days off, I offered to the crowd of strangers staring at me, friends of a friend. It was true. Can you eat all bran and chicken seven days a week? Me neither. Don't be so judgmental. Between my tenth and twelfth cupcakes, I plopped down on the couch to revel in the sugar high until the clock struck midnight and sent me back to my Adultsville Sunday-Friday diet. There was another party guest seated next to me on a chair, nursing a glass of wine, not his twelfth, but certainly not his first, and we struck up a conversation. As usual, I had to struggle to answer, what do you do? And as usual, my answer left someone to wonder whether I was a pathological liar or a criminal. How is it possible to spend so little time on income generation? It's a good question. It's the question. In almost all respects, Charney had it all. He was happily married with a two-year-old son and another due to arrive in three months. He was a successful technology salesman, and though he wanted to earn $500,000 more per year, as all do, his finances were solid. He also asked good questions. I had just returned from another trip overseas and was planning a new adventure to Japan. He drilled me for two hours with a refrain, How is it possible to spend so little time on income generation? If you're interested, we can make you a case study and I'll show you how, I offered. Charney was in. The one thing he didn't have was time. One email and five weeks of practice later, Charney had good news. He had accomplished more in the last week than he had in the previous four combined. He did so while taking Monday and Friday off and spending at least two more hours per day with his family. From 40 hours per week, he was down to 18 and producing four times the results. Was it from mountaintop retreats and secret kung fu training? Nope. Was it a new Japanese management secret or better software? Nein. I just asked him to do one simple thing consistently without fail. At least three times per day, at scheduled times, he had to ask himself the following question. Am I being productive or just active? Charney captured the essence of this with less abstract wording. Am I inventing things to do to avoid the important? He eliminated all of the activities he used as crutches and began to focus on demonstrating results instead of showing dedication. Dedication is often just meaningless work in disguise. Be ruthless and cut the fat. It is possible to have your cupcake and eat it, too. Q&A. Questions and Actions. We create stress for ourselves because you feel like you have to do it. You have to. I don't feel that anymore. Oprah Winfrey, actress and talk show host, The Oprah Winfrey Show. The key to having more time is doing less, and there are two paths to getting there, both of which should be used together. One, define a short to-do list, and two, define a not-to-do list. Here are several hypothetical cases to help us get started. One. If you had a heart attack and you had to work two hours per day, what would you do? Not five hours, not four hours, not three, two hours. It's not where I want you to ultimately be, but it's a start. Besides, I can hear your brain bubbling already. That's ridiculous, impossible. I know, I know. If I told you that you could survive for months, functioning quite well on four hours of sleep per night, would you believe me? Probably not. Notwithstanding, millions of new mothers do it all the time. 
This exercise is not optional. The doctor has warned you after triple bypass surgery that if you don't cut down your work to two hours per day for the first three months of post-op, you will die. How would you do it? 2. If you had a second heart attack and had to work two hours per week, what would you do? 3. If you had a gun to your head and had to stop doing four-fifths of different time-consuming activities, what would you remove? Simplicity requires ruthlessness. If you had to stop four-fifths of time-consuming activities, email, phone calls, conversations, paperwork, meetings, advertising, customers, suppliers, products, services, etc., what would you eliminate to keep the negative effect on income to a minimum? Used even once per month, this question alone can keep you sane and on track. 4. What are the top three activities that I use to fill time to feel as though I've been productive? These are usually used to postpone more important actions, often uncomfortable because there is a chance of failure or rejection. Be honest with yourself, as we all do this on occasion. What are your crutch activities? 5. Learn to ask, if this is the only thing I accomplish today, will I be satisfied with my day? Don't ever arrive at the office or in front of your computer without a clear list of priorities. You'll just read unassociated email and scramble your brain for the day. Compile your to-do list for tomorrow no later than this evening. I don't recommend using Outlook or computerized to-do lists because it is possible to add an infinite number of items. I use a standard piece of paper folded three times to about two inches by three and a half inches, which fits perfectly in the pocket and limits you to noting only a few items. There should never be more than two mission-critical items to complete each day. Never. It just isn't necessary if they're actually high impact. If you are stuck trying to decide between multiple items that all seem crucial, as happens to all of us, look at each in turn and ask yourself, if this is the only thing I accomplished today, will I be satisfied with my day? To counter the seemingly urgent, ask yourself, what will happen if I don't do this, and is it worth putting off the important to do it? If you haven't already accomplished at least one important task in the day, don't spend the last business hour returning a DVD to avoid a $5 late charge. Get the important task done and pay the $5 fine. 6. Put a post-it on your computer screen or set an Outlook reminder to alert you at least three times daily with the question, Are you inventing things to do to avoid the important? 7. Do not multitask. I'm going to tell you what you already know. Trying to brush your teeth, talk on the phone, and answer email at the same time just doesn't work. Eating while doing online research and instant messaging? Ditto. If you prioritize properly, there is no need to multitask. It is a symptom of task creep, doing more to feel productive while actually accomplishing less. To repeat, you should have, at most, two primary goals or tasks per day. Do them separately from start to finish without distraction. Divided attention will result in more frequent interruptions, lapses in concentration, poorer net results, and less gratification. 8. Use Parkinson's Law on a macro and micro level. Use Parkinson's Law to accomplish more in less time. Shorten schedules and deadlines to force focused action and prevent procrastination. On a macro weekly and daily level, attempt to leave work at 4 p.m. and take Monday and or Friday off. 
This will focus you to prioritize and quite possibly develop a social life. If you're under the hawk-like watch of a boss, we'll discuss the nuts and bolts of how to escape in later chapters. On a micro-task level, limit the number of items on your to-do list and use impossibly short deadlines to force immediate action while ignoring minutiae. Comfort Challenge Learn to propose. Two days. Stop asking for opinions and start proposing solutions. Begin with the small things. If someone is going to ask or asks, where should we eat, what movie should we watch, what should we do tonight, or anything similar, do not reflect it back with, well, what do you want to? Offer a solution. Stop the back and forth and make a decision. Practice this in both personal and professional environments. Here are a few lines that help. My favorites are the first and last. Can I make a suggestion? I propose. I'd like to propose. I suggest that. What do you think? Let's try. And then try something else if that doesn't work. Chapter 6. The Low Information Diet. Cultivating Selective Ignorance. What information consumes is rather obvious. It consumes the attention of its recipients. Hence, a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention and a need to allocate that attention efficiently among the overabundance of information sources that might consume it. Herbert Simon, recipient of Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics and the A.M. Turing Award, the Nobel Prize of Computer Science. Reading, after a certain age, diverts the mind too much from its creative pursuits. Any man who reads too much and uses his own brain too little falls into lazy habits of thinking. Albert Einstein I hope you're sitting down. Take that sandwich out of your mouth so you don't choke. Cover the baby's ears. I'm going to tell you something that upsets a lot of people. I never watch the news and I have bought one single newspaper in the last five years in Stansted Airport in London and only because it gave me a discount on a Diet Pepsi. I would claim to be Amish, but last time I checked, Pepsi wasn't on the menu. How obscene! I call myself an informed and responsible citizen? How do I stay up to date with current affairs? I'll answer all of that, but wait, it gets better. I check business email for about an hour each Monday, and I never check voicemail when abroad. Never, ever. But what if someone has an emergency? It doesn't happen. My contacts now know that I don't respond to emergencies, so the emergencies somehow don't exist or don't come to me. Problems, as a rule, solve themselves or disappear if you remove yourself as an information bottleneck and empower others. Cultivating Selective Ignorance There are many things of which a wise man might wish to be ignorant. Ralph Waldo Emerson, 1803-1882 From this point forward, I am going to propose that you develop an uncanny ability to be selectively ignorant. Ignorance may be bliss, but it is also practical. It is imperative that you learn to ignore or redirect all information and interruptions that are irrelevant, unimportant, or unactionable. Most are all three. The first step is to develop and maintain a low-information diet. Just as modern man consumes both too many calories and calories of no nutritional value, information workers eat data both in excess and from the wrong sources. Lifestyle design is based on massive action, output. Increased output necessitates decreased input. Most information is time-consuming, negative, irrelevant to your goals, and outside of your influence. 
I challenge you to look at whatever you read or watched today and tell me that it wasn't at least two of the four. I read the front page headlines through the newspaper machines as I walk to lunch each day and nothing more. In five years I haven't had a single problem due to this selective ignorance. It gives you something new to ask the rest of the population in lieu of small talk. Tell me, what's new in the world? And if it's that important, you'll hear people talking about it. Using my crib notes approach to world affairs, I also retain more than someone who loses the forest for the trees in a sea of extraneous details. From an actionable information standpoint, I consume a maximum of one-third of one industry magazine, response magazine, and one business magazine, Inc., per month, for a grand total of approximately four hours. That's it for results-oriented reading. I read an hour of fiction prior to bed for relaxation. How on earth do I act responsibly? Let me give you an example of how I and other NR both consider and obtain information. I voted in the last presidential election despite having been in Berlin. I made my decision in a matter of hours. First, I sent emails to educated friends in the United States who share my values and asked them who they were voting for and why. Second, I judge people based on actions and not words. Thus, I asked friends in Berlin who had more perspective outside of U.S. media propaganda how they judged the candidates based on their historical behavior. Last, I watched the presidential debates. That was it. I let other dependable people synthesize hundreds of hours and thousands of pages of media for me. It was like having dozens of personal information assistants and I didn't have to pay them a single cent. That's a simple example, you say, but what if you need to learn to do something your friends haven't done, like, say, sell a book to the world's largest publisher as a first-time author? Funny you should ask. There are two approaches I used. One, I picked one book out of dozens based on reader reviews and the fact that the authors had actually done what I wanted to do. If the task is how-to in nature, I only read accounts that are how I did it and autobiographical. No speculators or wannabes are worth the time. Two, using the book to generate intelligent and specific questions, I contacted ten of the top authors and agents in the world via email and phone with a response rate of 80%. I only read the sections of the book that were relevant to immediate next steps, which took less than two hours. To develop a template email and call script took approximately four hours and the actual emails and phone calls took less than an hour. This personal contact approach is not only more effective and more efficient than all-you-can-eat info buffets, it also provided me with the major league alliances and mentors necessary to sell this book. Rediscover the power of the forgotten skill called talking. It works. Once again, less is more. How to read 200% faster in 10 minutes. There will be times when, it's true, you will have to read. Here are four simple tips that will lessen the damage and increase your speed at least 200% in 10 minutes with no comprehension loss. 1. 2 minutes. Use a pen or finger to trace under each line as you read as fast as possible. Reading is a series of jumping snapshots called saccades, and using a visual guide prevents regression. 2. 3 minutes. Begin each line focusing on the third word in from the first word and end each line focusing on the third word in from the last word. This makes use of peripheral vision that is otherwise wasted on margins. For example, even when the highlighted words in the next line are your beginning and ending focal points, the entire sentence is read just with less eye movement. 
once upon a time an information addict decided to detox. Move in from both sides further and further as it gets easier. 3. Two minutes. Once comfortable indenting three or four words from both sides, attempt to take only two snapshots, also known as fixations, per line on the first and last indented words. 4. Three minutes. Practice reading too fast for comprehension, but with good technique, the above three techniques, for five pages prior to reading at a comfortable speed. This will heighten perception and reset your speed limit, much like how 50 miles per hour normally feels fast but seems like slow motion if you drop down from 70 miles per hour on the freeway. To calculate reading speed in words per minute, WPM, and thus progress in a given book, add up the number of words in 10 lines and divide by 10 to get the average words per line. Multiply this by the number of lines per page and you have the average words per page. Now it's simple. If you initially read 1.25 pages in one minute at 330 average words per page, that's 412.5 words per minute. If you then read 3.5 pages after training, it's 1,155 words per minute and you're in the top 1% of the world's fastest readers. If interested in how people can read up to 12,719% faster, visit www.pxmethod.com. Q&A. Questions and Actions. Learning to ignore things is one of the great paths to inner peace. Robert J. Sawyer, Calculating God. 1. Go on an immediate one-week media fast. The world doesn't even hiccup, much less end, when you cut the information umbilical cord. To realize this, it's best to use the Band-Aid approach and do it quickly. A one-week media fast. Information is too much like ice cream to do otherwise. Oh, I'll just have half a spoonful is about as realistic as I just want to jump online for a minute. Go cold turkey. If you want to go back to the 15,000 calorie potato chip information diet afterward, fine. But beginning tomorrow and for at least five full days, here are the rules. No newspapers, magazines, audio books, or non-music radio. Music is permitted at all times. No news websites whatsoever, CNN.com, DrudgeReport.com, MSN.com, etc. No television at all, except for one hour of pleasure viewing each evening. No reading books, except for this book, and one hour of fiction pleasure reading prior to bed. As someone who read exclusively nonfiction for nearly 15 years, I can tell you two things. It's not productive to read two fact-based books at the same time. This is one, and fiction is better than sleeping pills for putting the happenings of the day behind you. No web surfing at the desk unless it is necessary to complete a work task for that day. Necessary means necessary, not nice to have. Unnecessary reading is public enemy number one during this one-week fast. What do you do with all the extra time? Replace the newspaper at breakfast with speaking to your spouse, bonding with your children, or learning the principles in this book. Between 9 to 5, complete your top priorities as per the last chapter. If you complete them with time to spare, do the exercises in this book. Recommending this book might seem hypocritical, but it's not. The information in these pages is both important and to be applied now, not tomorrow or the day after. Each day at lunch break and no earlier, get your 5-minute fix. Ask a well-informed colleague or a restaurant waiter, anything important happening in the world today? I couldn't get the paper today. 
Stop this as soon as you realize that the answer doesn't affect your actions at all. Most people won't even remember what they spent one to two hours absorbing that morning. Be strict with yourself. I can prescribe the medicine, but you need to take it. 2. Develop the habit of asking yourself, will I definitely use this information for something immediate and important? It's not enough to use the information for something. It needs to be immediate and important. If no on either count, don't consume it. Information is useless if it is not applied to something important or if you will forget it before you have a chance to apply it. I used to have the habit of reading a book or site to prepare for an event weeks or months in the future, and I would then need to reread the same material when the deadline for action was closer. This is stupid and redundant. Follow your to-do shortlist and fill in the information gaps as you go. 3. Practice the art of non-finishing. This is another one that took me a long time to learn. Starting something doesn't automatically justify finishing it. If you are reading an article that sucks, put it down and don't pick it back up. If you go to a movie and it's worse than the Matrix Revolutions, get the hell out of there before more neurons die. If you're full after half a plate of ribs, put the damn fork down and don't order dessert. More is not better, and stopping something is often ten times better than finishing it. Develop the habit of non-finishing that which is boring or unproductive if a boss isn't demanding it. Comfort Challenge Get phone numbers. Two days. Being sure to maintain eye contact, ask for the phone numbers of at least two, the more you attempt, the less stressful it will be, attractive members of the opposite sex on each day. Ladies, this means you're in the game as well, and it doesn't matter if you're 50 years old or older. Remember that the real goal is not to get numbers, but to get over the fear of asking, so the outcome is unimportant. If you're in a relationship, just toss the numbers if you get them. Go to a mall if you want to get some rapid-fire practice, my preference for getting over the discomfort quickly, and aim to ask three people in a row within five minutes. Feel free to use some variations of the following script. Excuse me, I know this is going to sound strange, but if I don't ask you now, I'll be kicking myself for the rest of the day. I'm running to meet a friend, i.e., I have friends and I am not a stalker, but I think you're really extremely drop-dead, cute, gorgeous, hot. Could I have your phone number? I'm not a psycho, I promise. You can give me a fake one if you're not interested. This book is continued on Disc 3. The 4-Hour Workweek, Escape the 9-to-5, Live Anywhere, and Join the New Rich by Timothy Ferris. Continued. Disc 3. Chapter 7. Interrupting Interruption and the Art of Refusal. Do your own thinking independently. Be the chess player, not the chess piece. Ralph Shirell. Meetings are an addictive, highly self-indulgent activity that corporations and other organizations habitually engage in only because they cannot actually masturbate. Dave Barry, Pulitzer Prize-winning American humorist. Spring 2000, Princeton, New Jersey. 1.35 p.m. I think I understand. Moving on. In the next paragraph, it explains that I had detailed notes and didn't want to miss a single point. 3.45 p.m. Okay, that makes sense, but if we look at the following example... I paused for a moment mid-sentence. The teaching assistant had both hands on his face. Tim, 
Let's end here for now. I'll be sure to keep these points in mind. He had had enough. Me too. But I knew I'd only have to do it once. For all four years of school, I had a policy. If I received anything less than an A on the first paper or non-multiple-choice test in a given class, I would bring two to three hours of questions to the grader's office hours and not leave until the other had answered them all or stopped out of exhaustion. This served two important purposes. One, I learned exactly how the grader evaluated work, including his or her prejudices and pet peeves. Two, the grader would think long and hard about ever giving me less than an A. He or she would never consider giving me a bad grade without exceptional reasons for doing so, as he or she knew I'd come a-knocking for another three-hour visit. Learn to be difficult when it counts. In school, as in life, having a reputation for being assertive will help you receive preferential treatment without having to beg or fight for it every time. Think back to your days on the playground. There was always a big bully and countless victims, but there was also that one small kid who fought like hell, thrashing and swinging for the fences. He or she might not have won, but after one or two exhausting exchanges, the bully chose not to bother him or her. It was easier to find someone else. Be that kid. Doing the important and ignoring the trivial is hard because so much of the world seems to conspire to force crap upon you. Fortunately, a few simple routine changes make bothering you much more painful than leaving you in peace. It's time to stop taking information abuse. Not all evils are created equal. For our purposes, an interruption is anything that prevents the start-to-finish completion of a critical task, and there are three principal offenders. 1. Time wasters. Those things that can be ignored with little or no consequence. Common time wasters include meetings, discussions, phone calls, and email that are unimportant. 2. Time consumers. Repetitive tasks or requests that need to be completed but often interrupt high-level work. Here are a few you might know intimately. Reading and responding to email. Making and returning phone calls. Customer service order status, product assistance, etc., financial or sales reporting, personal errands, all necessary repeated actions and tasks. 3. Empowerment failures. Instances where someone needs approval to make something small happen. Here are just a few. Fixing customer problems, lost shipments, damaged shipments, malfunctions, etc., customer contact, cash expenditures of all types. Let's look at the prescriptions for all three in turn. Time wasters. Become an ignoramus. The best defense is a good offense. Dan Gable, Olympic gold medalist in wrestling and the most successful coach in history. Personal record, 299, 6, and 3, with 182 pins. Time wasters are the easiest to eliminate and deflect. It is a matter of limiting access and funneling all communication toward immediate action. First, limit email consumption and production. This is the greatest single interruption in the modern world. 1. Turn off the Audible Alert if you have one on Outlook or a similar program, and turn off Automatic Send-Receive, which delivers email to your inbox as soon as someone sends them. 2. 
Check email twice per day, once at 12 noon or just prior to lunch, and again at 4 p.m. 12 p.m. and 4 p.m. are times that ensure you will have the most responses from previously sent email. Never check email first thing in the morning. This habit alone can change your life. It seems small, but has an enormous effect. Instead, complete your most important task before 11 a.m. to avoid using lunch or reading email as a postponement excuse. Before implementing the twice-daily routine, you must create an email auto-response that will train your boss, co-workers, suppliers, and clients to be more effective. I would recommend that you do not ask to implement this. Remember one of our Ten Commandments, beg for forgiveness, don't ask for permission. If this gives you heart palpitations, speak with your immediate supervisor and propose to trial the approach for one to three days. Cite pending projects and frustration with constant interruptions as the reasons. Feel free to blame it on spam or someone outside of the office. Here is a simple email template that can be used. Greetings, friends or esteemed colleagues. Due to high workload, I am currently checking and responding to email twice daily at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, or your time zone, and 4 p.m. Eastern Time. If you require urgent assistance, please ensure it is urgent, that cannot wait until either 12 p.m. or 4 p.m., please contact me via phone at 555-555-5555. Thank you for understanding this move to more efficiency and effectiveness. It helps me accomplish more to serve you better. Sincerely, Tim Ferriss. Move to once per day as quickly as possible. Emergencies are seldom that. People are poor judges of importance and inflate minutiae to fill time and feel important. This auto-response is a tool that, far from decreasing collective effectiveness, forces people to re-evaluate their reason for interrupting you and helps them decrease meaningless and time-consuming contact. I was initially terrified of missing important requests and inviting disaster, just as you might be upon reading this recommendation. Nothing happened. Give it a shot and work out the small bumps as you progress. For an extreme example of a personal autoresponder that has never prompted a complaint and allows me to check email once per week, send an email to timothy at brainquicken.com. It has been revised over three years and works like a charm. The second step is to screen incoming and limit outgoing phone calls. 1. Use two telephone numbers if possible, one office line, non-urgent, and one cellular, urgent. This could also be two cell phones, or the non-urgent line could be an internet phone number that routes calls to online voicemail, www.skype.com, for example. Use the cell number in the email autoresponse and answer it at all times unless it is an unidentified caller or it is a call you don't want to answer. If in doubt, allow the call to go to voicemail and listen to the voicemail immediately afterward to gauge importance. If it can wait, let it wait. The offending parties have to learn to wait. The office phone should be put on silent mode and allowed to go to voicemail at all times. The voicemail recording should sound familiar. You've reached the desk of Tim Ferriss. I'm currently checking and responding to voicemail twice daily at 12 p.m. Eastern Time, or your time zone, and 4 p.m. Eastern Time. If you require assistance with a truly urgent matter that cannot wait until either 12 p.m. or 4 p.m., please contact me on my cell at 555-555-5555. Otherwise, 
Please leave a message and I will return it at the next of those two times. Be sure to leave your email address as I am often able to respond faster that way. Thank you for understanding this move to more efficiency and effectiveness. It helps me accomplish more to serve you better. Have a wonderful day. If someone does call your cell phone, it is presumably urgent and should be treated as such. Do not allow them to consume time otherwise. It's all in the greeting. Compare the following. Jane, receiver. Hello? John, caller. Hi, is this Jane? Jane. This is Jane. John. Hi, Jane, it's John. Jane. Oh, hi, John, how are you? Or, oh, hi, John, what's going on? John will now digress and lead you into a conversation about nothing from which you will have to recover and then fish out the ultimate purpose of the call. There is a better approach. Jane. This is Jane speaking. John. Hi, it's John. Jane. Hi, John. I'm right in the middle of something. How can I help you out? Potential continuation. John. Oh, I can call back. Jane. No, I have a minute. What can I do for you? Don't encourage people to chit-chat and don't let them chit-chat. Get them to the point immediately. If they meander or try to postpone for a later undefined call, reel them in and get them to come to the point. If they go into a long description of a problem, cut in with name. Sorry to interrupt, but I have a call in five minutes. What can I do to help you? You might instead say name. Sorry to interrupt, but I have a call in five minutes. Can you send me an email? The third step is to master the art of refusal and avoiding meetings. The first day our new sales VP arrived at Trusan in 2001, he came into the all-company meeting and made an announcement in just about this many words. I'm not here to make friends. I have been hired to build a sales team and sell product, and that's what I intend to do. Thanks. So much for small talk. He proceeded to deliver on his promise. The office socializers disliked him for his no-nonsense approach to communication, but everyone respected his time. He wasn't rude without reason, but he was direct and kept the people around him focused. Some didn't consider him charismatic, but no one considered him anything less than spectacularly effective. I remember sitting down in his office for our first one-on-one -on -one meeting. Fresh off four years of rigorous academic training, I immediately jumped into explaining the prospect profiles, elaborate planning I'd developed, responses to date, and so forth and so on. I had spent at least two hours preparing to make this first impression a good one. He listened with a smile on his face for no more than two minutes and then held up a hand. I stopped. He laughed in a kind-hearted manner and said, Tim, I don't want the story. Just tell me what we need to do. Over the following weeks, he trained me to recognize when I was unfocused, or focused on the wrong things, which meant anything that didn't move the top two or three clients one step closer to signing a purchase order. Our meetings were now no more than five minutes long. From this moment forward, resolve to keep those around you focused and avoid all meetings, whether in person or remote, that do not have clear objectives. It is possible to do this tactfully, but expect that some time-wasters will be offended the first few times their advances are rejected. Once it is clear that remaining on task is your policy and not subject to change, they will accept it and move on with life. Hard feelings pass. Don't suffer fools, or you'll become one. It is your job to train those around you to be effective and efficient. No one else will do it for you. Here are a few recommendations. 1. 
Decide that, given the non-urgent nature of most issues, you will steer people toward the following means of communication, in order of preference, email, phone, and in-person meetings. If someone proposes a meeting, request an email instead, and then use the phone as your fallback offer, if need be. Cite other immediately pending work tasks as the reason. 2. Respond to voicemail via email whenever possible. This trains people to be concise. Help them develop the habit. Similar to our opening greeting on the phone, email communication should be streamlined to prevent needless back and forth. Thus, an email with, Can you meet at 4 p.m. would become, Can you meet at 4 p.m.? If so, If not, please advise three other times that work for you. This if-then structure becomes more important as you check email less often. Since I only check email once a week, it is critical that no one needs a what-if answered or other information within seven days of a given email I send. If I suspect that a manufacturing order hasn't arrived at the shipping facility, for example, I'll send an email to my shipping facility manager along these lines. Dear Susan, has the new manufacturing shipment arrived? If so, please advise me on dot dot dot. If not, please contact John Doe at five 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 or via email at john at doe dot com. He is also CC'd and advise on delivery date and tracking. John, if there are any issues with the shipment, please coordinate with Susan, reachable at five 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 four 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 four, who has the authority to make decisions up to five hundred dollars on my behalf. In case of emergency, call me on my cell phone but I trust you to. Thanks. This prevents most follow-up questions, avoids two separate dialogues, and takes me out of the problem-solving equation. Get into the habit of considering what if-then actions can be proposed in any email where you ask a question. 3. Meetings should only be held to make decisions about a predefined situation, not to define the problem. If someone proposes that you meet with them or set a time to talk on the phone, ask that person to send you an email with an agenda to define the purpose. That sounds doable, so I can best prepare. Can you please send me an email with an agenda? That is, the topics and questions we'll need to address? That would be great. Thanks in advance. Don't give them a chance to bail out. The thanks in advance before a retort increases your chances of getting the email. The email medium forces people to define the desired outcome of a meeting or call. Nine times out of ten, a meeting is unnecessary and you can answer the questions, once defined, via email. Impose this habit on others. I haven't had an in-person meeting for my business in more than five years and have had fewer than a dozen conference calls, all lasting less than 30 minutes. 4. Speaking of 30 minutes, if you absolutely cannot stop a meeting or call from happening, Define the end time. Do not leave these discussions open-ended and keep them short. If things are well-defined, decisions should not take more than 30 minutes. Cite other commitments at odd times to make them more believable, e.g. 3.20 versus 3.30, and force people to focus instead of socializing, commiserating, and digressing. If you must join a meeting that is scheduled to last a long time or that is open-ended, inform the organizer that you would like permission to cover your portion first as you have a commitment in 15 minutes. If you have to, feign an urgent phone call. Get the hell out of there and have someone else update you later. The other option is to be completely transparent and voice your opinion of how unnecessary the meeting is. If you choose this route, be prepared to face fire and offer alternatives.
5. The cubicle is your temple. Don't permit casual visitors. Some suggest using a clear do not disturb sign of some type, but I have found that this is ignored unless you have an office. My approach was to put headphones on, even if I wasn't listening to anything. If someone approached me, despite this discouragement, I would pretend to be on the phone. I'd put a finger to my lips, say something like, I hear you, and then say into the mic, Can you hold on a second? Next, I'd turn to the invader and say, Hi, what can I do for you? I wouldn't let them get back to me, but rather force the person to give me a five-second summary and then send me an email if necessary. If headphone games aren't your thing, the reflexive response to an invader should be the same as when answering the cell phone. Hi, invader, I'm right in the middle of something. How can I be of help? If it's not clear within 30 seconds, ask the person to send you an email about the chosen issue. Do not offer to send them an email first. I'd be happy to help, but I have to finish this first. Can you send me a quick email to remind me? If you still cannot deflect an invader, give the person a time limit on your availability, which can also be used for phone conversations. Okay, I only have two minutes before a call, but what's the situation? What can I do to help? 6. Use the puppy dog clothes to help your superiors and others develop the no-meeting habit. The puppy dog clothes in sales is so named because it is based on the pet store sales approach. If someone likes a puppy but is hesitant to make the life-altering purchase, just offer to let them take the pup home and bring it back if they change their minds. Of course, the return seldom happens. The puppy dog clothes is invaluable whenever you face resistance to permanent changes. Get your foot in the door with a let's-just-try-it-once reversible trial. Compare the following. I think you'd love this puppy. It will forever add to your responsibilities until he dies ten years from now. No more carefree vacations, and you'll finally get to pick up poop all over the city. What do you think? Versus, I think you'd love this puppy. Why don't you just take him home and see what you think? You can just bring him back if you change your mind. Now imagine walking up to your boss in the hallway and clapping a hand on her shoulder. I'd like to go to the meeting, but I have a better idea. Let's never have another one, since all we do is waste time and not decide anything useful. Versus, I'd really like to go to the meeting, but I'm totally overwhelmed and really need to get a few important things done. Can I sit out just for today? I'd be distracted in the meeting otherwise. I promise I'll catch up afterward by reviewing the meeting with colleague X. Is that okay? The second set of alternatives seem less permanent, and they're intended to appear so. Repeat this routine and ensure that you achieve more outside of the meeting than the attendees do within it. Repeat the disappearing act as often as possible and cite improved productivity to convert this slowly into a permanent routine change. Learn to imitate any good child. Just this once, please. I promise I'll do X. Parents fall for it because kids help adults to fool themselves. It works with bosses, suppliers, customers, and the rest of the world, too. Use it, but don't fall for it. If a boss asks for overtime just this once, he or she will expect it in the future. Time consumers, batch and do not falter. A schedule defends from chaos and whim. Annie Dillard, winner of Pulitzer Prize in Nonfiction, 1975. If you have never used a commercial printer before, the pricing and lead times could surprise you. Let's assume it costs $310 and takes one week to print 20 customized t-shirts with four color logos. How much and how long does it take to print three of the same t-shirt? $310 in one week. How is that possible? 
Simple. The setup charges don't change. It costs the printer the same amount in materials for plate preparation, $150, and the same in labor to man the press itself, $100. The setup is the real-time consumer and thus the job, despite its small size, needs to be scheduled just like the other, resulting in the same one-week delivery date. The lower economy of scale picks up the rest. The cost for three shirts is $20 per shirt times three shirts instead of $3 per shirt times 20 shirts. The cost and time-effective solution, therefore, is to wait until you have a larger order, an approach called batching. Batching is also the solution to our distracting but necessary time consumers, those repetitive tasks that interrupt the most important. If you check mail and make bill payments five times a week, it might take 30 minutes per instance and you respond to a total of 20 letters. If you do this once per week instead, it might take 60 minutes total and you still respond to a total of 20 letters in two and a half hours. People do the former out of fear of emergencies. First, there are seldom real emergencies. Second, of the urgent communication you will receive, missing a deadline is usually reversible and otherwise costs a minimum to correct. There is an inescapable setup time for all tasks, large or minuscule in scale. It is often the same for one as it is for a hundred. There's a psychological switching of gears that can require up to 45 minutes to resume a major task that has been interrupted. More than a quarter of each nine to five period, 28%, is consumed by such interruptions. This is true of all recurring tasks and is precisely why we have already decided to check email and phone calls twice per day at specific predetermined times, between which we let them accumulate. For the last three years I have checked mail no more than once a week, often not for up to four weeks at a time. Nothing has been irreparable and nothing has cost more than $300 to fix. This batching has saved me hundreds of hours of redundant work. How much is your time worth? Let's use a hypothetical example. 1. $20 per hour is how much you are paid or value your time. This would be the case, for example, if you are paid $40,000 per year and get two weeks of vacation per year. $40,000 divided by 40 hours per week times 50 equals 2,000 equals $20 per hour. 2. Estimate the amount of time you will save by grouping similar tasks together and batching them, and calculate how much you have earned by multiplying this hour number by your per hour rate, $20 here. One time per week, 10 hours equals $200. One time per two weeks, 20 hours equals $400. One time per month, 40 hours equals $800. Three. Test each of the above batching frequencies and determine how much problems cost to fix in each period. If the cost is less than the above dollar amounts, batch even further apart. For example, using our above math, if I check email once per week and that results in an average loss of two sales per week, totaling $80 in lost profit, I will continue checking once per week because $200, 10 hours of time, minus $80, is still a $120 net gain, not to mention the enormous benefits of completing other main tasks in those 10 hours. If you calculate the financial and emotional benefit of completing just one main task, such as landing a major client or completing a life-changing trip, the value of batching is much more than the per-hour savings. 
If the problems cost more than hours saved, scale back to the next less frequent batch schedule. In this case, I would drop from once per week to twice per week, not daily, and attempt to fix the system so that I can return to once per week. Do not work harder when the solution is working smarter. I have batched both personal and business tasks further and further apart as I've realized just how few real problems come up. Some of my current batches are as follows. Email, Mondays, 10 a.m. Phone, completely eliminated. Laundry, every other Sunday at 10 p.m. Credit cards and bills, most are on automatic payment, but I check balances every second Monday after email. Strength training, every fourth day for 30 minutes, etc. Empowerment failure, rules and readjustment. The vision is really about empowering workers, giving them all the information about what's going on so they can do a lot more than they've done in the past. Bill Gates, co-founder of Microsoft, richest man in the world. Empowerment failure refers to being unable to accomplish a task without first obtaining permission or information. It is often a case of being micromanaged or micromanaging someone else, both of which consume your time. For the employee, the goal is to have full access to necessary information and as much independent decision-making ability as possible. For the entrepreneur, the goal is to grant as much information and independent decision-making ability to employees or contractors as possible. Customer service is often the epitome of empowerment failure, and a personal example from BrainQuicken illustrates just how serious but easily solved the problem can be. In 2002, I had outsourced customer service for order tracking and returns, but still handled product-related questions myself. The result? I received more than 200 email per day, spending all hours between 9 to 5 responding to them, and the volume was growing at a rate of more than 10% per week. I had to cancel advertising and limit shipments as additional customer service would have been the final nail in the coffin. It wasn't a scalable model. Remember this word, as it will be important later. It wasn't scalable, because there was an information and decision bottleneck. Me. The clincher? The bulk of the email that landed in my inbox was not product-related at all, but requests from the outsourced customer service reps seeking permission for different actions. The customer claims he didn't receive the shipment. What should we do? The customer had a bottle held at customs. Can we reship to a U.S. address? The customer needs the product for a competition in two days. Can we ship overnight? And if so, how much should we charge? It was endless. Hundreds upon hundreds of different situations made it impractical to write a manual, and I didn't have the time or experience to do so regardless. Fortunately, Someone did have the experience, the outsourced reps themselves. I sent one single email to all the supervisors that immediately turned 200 email per day into fewer than 20 email per week. Hi all, I would like to establish a new policy for my account that overrides all others. Keep the customer happy. If it is a problem that takes less than $100 to fix, use your judgment and fix it yourself. This is official written permission and a request to fix all problems that cost under $100 without contacting me. I am no longer your customer. My customers are your customer. Don't ask me for permission. Do what you think is right and we'll make adjustments as we go along. Thank you. Tim
Upon close analysis, it became clear that more than 90% of all the issues that prompted email could be resolved for less than $20. I reviewed the financial results of their independent decision-making on a weekly basis for four weeks, then a monthly basis, then on a quarterly basis. It's amazing how someone's IQ seems to double as soon as you give them responsibility and indicate that you trust them. The first month cost perhaps $200 more than if I had been micromanaging. In the meantime, I saved more than 100 hours of my own time per month. Customers received faster service, returns dropped to less than 3%, the industry average is 10 to 15%, and outsourcers spent less time on my account, all of which resulted in rapid growth, higher profit margins, and happier people on all sides. People are smarter than you think. Give them a chance to prove themselves. If you are a micromanaged employee, have a heart-to-heart -heart with your boss and explain that you want to be more productive and interrupt him or her less. I hate that I have to interrupt you so much and pull you away from more important things I know you have on your plate. I was doing some reading and had some thoughts on how I might be more productive. Do you have a second? Before this conversation, develop a number of rules, like the previous example, that would allow you to work more autonomously with less approval-seeking. The boss can review the outcome of your decisions on a daily or weekly basis in the initial stages. Suggest a one-week trial and end with, I'd like to try it. Does that sound like something we could try for a week? Or my personal favorite, is that reasonable? It's hard for people to label things unreasonable. Realize that bosses are supervisors, not slave masters. Establish yourself as a consistent challenger of the status quo and most people will learn to avoid challenging you, particularly if it is in the interest of higher per hour productivity. If you are a micromanaging entrepreneur, realize that even if you can do something better than the rest of the world, it doesn't mean that's what you should be doing if it's part of the minutia. Empower others to act without interrupting you. The bottom line is, is that you only have the rights you fight for. Set the rules in your favor. Limit access to your time. Force people to define their requests before spending time with them. And batch routine menial tasks to prevent postponement of more important projects. Do not let people interrupt you. Find your focus and you'll find your lifestyle. In the next section, Automation, we'll see how the new rich create management-free money and eliminate the largest remaining obstacle of all, themselves. Q&A. Questions and Actions. People think it must be fun to be a super genius, but they don't realize how hard it is to put up with all the idiots in the world. Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes. Learn to recognize and fight the interruption impulse. This is infinitely easier when you have a set of rules, responses, and routines to follow. It is your job to prevent yourself and others from letting the unnecessary and unimportant prevent the start-to-finish completion of the important. This chapter differs from the previous in that the necessary actions due to the inclusion of examples and templates have been presented throughout from start to finish. This Q&A will thus be a summary rather than a repetition. The devil is in the details, so be sure to reread this chapter for the specifics. The 50,000-foot review is as follows. 1. Create systems to limit your availability via email and phone and deflect inappropriate contact. Get the auto-response and voicemail script in place now and master the various methods of evasion. Replace the habit of, how are you, with, how can I help you. Get specific and remember, no stories. Focus on immediate actions and practice interruption-killing policies. Avoid meetings whenever possible.
Use email instead of face-to-face -face meetings to solve problems. Beg off going. This can be accomplished through the puppy dog close. If meetings are unavoidable, keep the following in mind. Go in with a clear set of objectives, set an end time, or leave early. 2. Batch activities to limit setup cost and provide more time for dreamline milestones. What can I routinize by batching? That is, what tasks, whether laundry, groceries, mail, payments, or sales reporting, for example, can I allot to a specific time each day, week, month, quarter, or year so that I don't squander time repeating them more often than is absolutely necessary?